It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, March 13th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpert. The COVID pandemic reaches a two-year milestone. We continue to keep our eye on this virus because we know that this virus is not done with us. And with primary season upon us, we turn to Pennsylvania. One of the candidates, and I'll mention him by name, Dave McCormick, built the largest foreign-owned hedge fund ever in China. This coming from Mehmet Oz is, um, is something. First, it's an attack on my patriotism from a guy who served in the Turkish military and is a dual citizen of Turkey, which is an adversary of ours in bed with Iran. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic is officially two years old. SARS-CoV-2 was declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization on March 11, 2020 weeks after the virus was considered a public health emergency of global concern. That same day, March 11, 2020, you may recall some of the first major shutdowns also started. The NBA that night suspended its season after a positive case. In the two years since, lockdowns, mask requirements, vaccine mandates have all become a regular part of many of our lives. Also, in those two years, more than six million deaths around the world have been attributed to COVID. Worldwide, there have been more than 453 million cases. There was another COVID milestone this week. Hawaii became the 50th and thus final state to announce the end of mandatory masking in public spaces. As the CDC has provided new guidance, the vast majority of Americans are now living in areas of low spread. Does that data, coupled with ending mandates, point to an end to the pandemic? Maybe not. We start there with Dr. Syra Madad, the senior director of the Special Pathogens Program at NYC Health plus hospitals. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're distinct events, but they're related in a sense where it shows you where we are in the state of this pandemic, both nationally here in the United States and then globally around the world. So if we first kind of take the global picture and start from the highest level, you know, uh, as you mentioned, it is a two-year anniversary since the World Health Organization has officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. But even before that, I would say, actually, if we look at the timeline, six weeks before this declaration that happened two years ago on this day, on January 30th, 2020, they declared COVID-19 basically a public health emergency of international concern. And that's one of the highest levels from a global health regulation standpoint, where they're sounding the alarm that this is something that is concerning. And at that time, in January, um, there were less than 100 cases outside of China. And so they knew this was something that could potentially grow. And then six weeks later, they declared it a pandemic. And at that time, March 11th, 2020, there were 114 countries at that point reporting cases of COVID-19 with 4,000 deaths and over 118 cases in total. And so now here we are two years later, and the global toll now stands at 
over 450 million cases around the world, over 6 million deaths. And every single day around the world, we're clocking in over 1.6 million cases and 7,000 people dying every day from this virus. So we have been in a state of perpetual acute emergency because of this virus. It has brought, I would say, all of humanity to its knees. But certainly now, as we look at where we are, cases have been declining, even around the world, over 16%. And locally here in the United States, it's been a significant decrease from the 1 million cases we were seeing at the peak in January to now about 30,000, 40,000 cases per day. So a significant decrease. At the same time, we still have about 1,500 people dying every day of this virus um, from this virus in this country. So we're in a better position, but we, are, we can't say that we're at the end of this pandemic. Are the end of restrictions, whether they be vaccine requirements or mask mandates being lifted, being dropped, are, are those decisions being made because that's what the data says is a practical step, a prudent step, or are those being dropped because health experts and policymakers are just sort of clear that, that there is a COVID fatigue here that has taken grip? Well, you know, I think our policies and guidances should always not only look at the science and the data and where we are, but also have to factor in the the people element of how do people feel. And if we continue with these restrictions, uh, for example, or these protective measures like masking all the time, are people actually going to listen when cases are low? And then when cases uh, increase again, you know, can we expect them to put that to put that mask back on or to continue masking? So it's really important that we layer on the science and the data with the actual human element, the so social sciences of what can people actually tolerate? What are they willing to do? And so right now, given that there are low levels of community transmission and with CDC's new community level guidance, you're seeing that over 90 percent of, you know, um, U.S. counties are at the level of low to medium levels of community transmission hospitalizations are are very low. They're at one of the lowest points since summer of last year. So we are in a much better position. We have much more immunity in our population, both from vaccination and from prior infection. So I do think that, uh, you know, depending on where you're living, um, certainly it is appropriate to start looking at can these uh, protective measures, can we, can we scale them back? But at the same time, it's an individual level decision because, uh, you know, as we're looking at cases and data, that's, these are just one single um, point. You have to overlay that with your own health status. If you are high risk, if you're living with people that are high risk, if you have children that are that remain unvaccinated, those are things that you want to factor in in your decision of whether I should scale back on masking or should I continue masking in these public spaces. So always make sure that while you're looking at the data, you're also putting in your element. What are you comfortable with? Who are you around? Are you high risk? And then make sure you're making those decisions based on what's best for you and your family. Let me ask about that, uh, because obviously, you know, where I live here in the D.C. area, we do not have any mask requirements that are in place, though an awful lot of people still wear them. Um, that's certainly their individual choice. If somebody is wearing a mask and somebody else is not wearing a mask, who is protected? Who isn't? Is there two-way protection here on these face masks? What do we know now that maybe we didn't know earlier in the pandemic about covering our faces? 
Well, we've learned a lot, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Uh, and when it comes to masks, we know that they are highly protective. And at that time, early in this pan- in, the, in the pandemic, we didn't have a whole lot of data that shows, you know, which type of face coverings or face masks uh, provide the highest level of protection, both to the wearer and those uh, those around the wearer. Um, and, you know, what the duration, what type of material. And now we have all that information. In fact, now we have real world studies that actually show that when you're masking, you know, what does this do to community transmission levels? How is the person that's wearing the mask protected? And what I'll say to that is now we know that, for example, one-way masking is still highly protective. So the person that's wearing a high quality mask, like an N95, a KN95, a KF94, they are still well protected over about 50% or so. So one-way masking is still really, um, you know, really protective. And of course, you have you having two people masking, then that overall protection goes up by 80 to 90 percent or more. And so it depends on the type of mask that you're that you're wearing. And then if the other person is also wearing a mask, as well as the environment that you're in, if you're in a very kind of a crowded situation, confined space, poorly ventilated. The risk certainly is higher, but when you're masking, that risk goes down. But if you're in a better ventilated place and you're still masking, then that risk of getting infected significantly goes down even further. Why do you think the TSA extended the public transportation component to masking for another month? If so many places, as you point out, around the country are low transmission. Yeah, well, you know, I think this is where and there's a lot of robust discussion and a number of my colleagues, including myself, you know, when we look at public health guidance, it's for the public at large, right? And it shouldn't necessarily just be at the individual level, which obviously we want to give individual, um, you know, uh, information of what to do to protect yourself. But guidance, by and large, should really be the protection of everybody. And so when we talk about the Transportation Security Administration extending its mask mandate on public transportation uh, and transportation hubs through April, we're really seeing that we want to make sure we provide public health guidance that's for the betterment of everybody, because we have individuals that are high risk in our population that are immunocompromised. We still have millions of children that remain unvaccinated, even adults that remain unvaccinated. And so while we are in a better position, when you're looking at many of these transportation uh, mechanisms, they do fall under crowded situations, confined spaces, poorly ventilated. So they are at higher risk for spreading COVID-19. And we want to make sure we're protecting everybody you know, from this virus. I guess, you know, you, you, I only ask because obviously if people watch, say, the State of the Union address, you saw the entire government, yeah. you know, crowded without a mask. If you see, geez, the way that we do hallway interviews in the Capitol or the White House, where we're all kind of shoulder to shoulder. Uh, people might wonder, you know, what's the difference between that and sitting in line uh, or, or sitting on an airplane? Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's a really important point. And what the difference you're seeing is that, as you heard from you know the beginning of the pandemic, that layering on mitigation measures really helps reduce the risk. So masking is just one layer. Testing is another layer. So when you, uh, you know, when all of us were watching the State of the Union, what people may not have known is that everybody that was in that particular room was tested beforehand. And if they tested positive, obviously they wouldn't be allowed to enter the room. And so they had that extra layer of protection. So when you know that people around you are tested and they're negative, it's not that it's 100% they don't have the virus because we know not not all the tests are 100% or you may be asymptomatic or early days and the, the test may not have picked it up. But you're pretty, pretty close. And on top of that, you have everybody that's also vaccinated. So those additional layers of protection give you better confidence that the risk of somebody you're, that you're sitting next to has COVID and can spread it 
is quite low. And so because of that, the masking, obviously, you, di you didn't see people masked by and large, but that's also because they were vaccinated and they were tested ahead of time. And that's different than getting on a plane because you don't know if the person is vaccinated. You don't know if that person is tested. And that's why you want to keep that mask on because it gives you that layer of protection. All right. Let me finish with this, because you mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, we're seeing the lowest levels now since last summer. I remember last summer numbers went down and we were told we didn't have to wear a mask anymore. Uh, and I put all of mine away and I, I thought maybe we were done with it. And, and then we weren't. Are we done with those precautions now? Not at all. Not by a chance. And the reason why I say that is we should a take all the wins that we can get. We are in a period of lull, as as many of, of my colleagues, myself, kind of put it. But this is a time that we continue to remain vigilant, we remain humble, and we continue to keep our eye on this virus because we know that this virus is not done with us. There are still millions of people, billions of people that remain unvaccinated around the world. And in fact, you know, there's only been about 10.9 billion vaccines, you know, um, administered around the world. So you still have many people that they don't even have one dose yet. So there's many more opportunities for this virus to transmit, to mutate. So there's nothing for us to say, you know, in concrete terms that, oh, we're not going to see another variant that's going to impact our vaccine or, or our infection-induced immunity. We can't say that for sure. And so because of that, and because we this virus is still circulating in communities, in fact, in the Western Pacific uh, countries, you're seeing the virus, uh, you know, case rates skyrocket. So that's nothing. So we can't say that, this pandemic is over, that we're not going to see a resurgence of this virus or a new variant. And so it's that much more important that we continue to communicate effectively and let people know that if cases continue to increase, if we see a new variant that is going to threaten, uh, you know, um, all of us and at the individual level and the community level, we may have to bring many of these protective measures back. And so just to be ready for it, but enjoy the time that we have, but just make sure that you know, public health officials are keeping an eye on it, as well as yourself and, you know, know where you're going um, and what's happening in that community to protect yourself. What metric would need to be reached for the WHO to say this is no longer a pandemic? Are we close to that? Yeah, no, not by a long shot. And in fact, because of the unpredictability uh, and the nature of these new variants emerging, because there's still so many people that remain unvaccinated, um, because we still don't have enough therapeutics that are yeah, available to uh, individuals, uh, you know, all around the world, we cannot say for sure that this pandemic is over. I would say that once we are at a place where you, where, where we stabilize, right, where COVID is endemic all around the world in a way that we have decreased morbidity, mortality, we have increased vaccination rates, we have more access to therapeutics, that is when I'm sure the World Health Organization can reevaluate their pandemic stance. And every three months, the group at the World Health Organization do meet and they reevaluate, is this still a public health emergency of international concern? And every three months, we know, uh, you know, that is reinstated because we are still in the throes of, of this pandemic. All right, Dr. Madad, we've spoken a lot over the last two years. I always appreciate your, your helping us understand the uh, public policy side of this. And we'll continue to have these conversations, it sounds like, for, for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully it, it'll end soon. We know it'll end soon. We just don't know exactly when. <laughs> The midterms primary season is officially underway. And like the 162-game Major League Baseball schedule, the road between those first contests and the final results will be filled with ups and downs, rises and falls in the rankings, and probably an October surprise or two. 
So between now and then, we'll not only keep track of the box scores, but some of the key primary races that could decide which party ends up in control of the Senate. The latest batch of Fox News power rankings puts five Senate contests in the toss-up category. Four of those seats, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire, are defended by Democrats. The fifth, Pennsylvania, is open with the retirement of Republican Pat Toomey. Both parties are fielding competitive primaries with well-known candidates. Two of those on the Republican side are Mehmet Oz, a surgeon and TV host, and David McCormick, a hedge fund CEO and former Treasury Department official. This week, those two candidates spoke with two of my Fox News rundown colleagues, Dave Anthony and Mike Emanuel. As part of a series of candidate interviews, we hope to bring you all primary season long. As U.S. officials weigh more options in the way of diplomacy or additional sanctions, some believe that hesitation to act is becoming a decision-making factor for Russia. Their weakness on the part of the U.S. government was quickly diagnosed and acted on by Putin, who's an aggressive tyrant, but he is wise to geopolitical affairs. Dr. Mehmet Oz is running as a Republican to represent Pennsylvania in the United States Senate. And he took advantage of weakness not only over the past few months, but for the past year as he witnessed the United States shut down energy projects, oftentimes based on ideologies that are not fundamentally going to guide us in the right direction and aren't scientifically valid either. And I'm campaigning for the Senate in Pennsylvania, and even the people serving your food, the diners, can carefully walk you through why natural gas is a unbelievable opportunity for this country, but we don't let it get pulled out of the soil beneath my ground in Pennsylvania, so it's not going to help our European allies when they're coping with the fact that it's going to be a cold winter without Russian fuel. So we're actually literally fueling the empire that's invading the Ukraine because of poor planning. Of course, winning a United States Senate seat, uh, you're in a very competitive, crowded field. Uh, Talk about setting yourself apart in a crowded field. There's a lot of things that differentiate me. One is uh, the fact that I've actually competed on the big stage. None of my competitors have, have, had, have held elective office or been on that stage addressing these broader issues. Uh, secondly, I've got the power to convene, in part because everyone knows who I am. Even if they don't like me, they want to understand me. So a lot of folks come to our town halls. They come because they want to kick the tires of the Oz campaign. Am I legitimately as conservative as they hope? Am I able to respond to their challenges, to issues that are pertinent to their lives? And what will I really do? But I'll tell you what they're saying more than anything else. Will I act on what I'm telling them? Will I keep my word? And that's what this election and the campaign will turn on. Who they believe will actually do that. And they want a loud, bold voice in Washington to articulate that. They feel like they've been forgotten. So we're trying to make sure that Pennsylvania is remembered as the powerful commonwealth that it is. China's become a big campaign issue in Pennsylvania's GOP primary, with many candidates looking to highlight how they would be tough when it comes to the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Break down for us uh, what being tough on China might actually look like from a federal perspective. Well, before I get to that, let me just differentiate all the candidates. One of the candidates, and I'll mention him by name, Dave McCormick, built the largest foreign-owned hedge fund ever in China, raised $1.3 billion, that's with a B, $1.3 billion, uh, raised the money, concluding last November. That's where they announced it, and then opened up the Senate offices less than two months later. So there's a little difference. I mean, one person has literally been building the financial infrastructure of China, which they will use to, to fund all the things that China is doing, which includes cheating across the board, period. Not just 
you know, putting tenured professor salaries for major universities on their payroll, which means they control what you say, but funding research that's beneficial to them, sending students over, some of whom are spying on us. Uh, they've been very involved in stealing technology from anyone who tries to go to China to do business. And this is important. Whatever they say, they just don't seem to do. They promised that they would reach a certain level of, of trade balance with us. They're not doing it. You know, I've worked with China. One of the most important things with working with the Chinese business that I've not worked with the leaders is if you catch them lying, you tell them in a polite way that you caught them. They expect to be caught because everyone cheats in China, and then they'll stop doing it for a while till you catch them again. That's how you do business there. So if you want to do that kind of work, fine. But as a federal representative of the, of the people of Pennsylvania, the number one thing I do is begin onshoring businesses from China. We have to start making this stuff in America. Medications, protective gear. You can't be at a national security deficit to China and expect to do well. We saw what happens when we're just a little behind Russia. China will eat our lunch. McCormick's reaction to his Republican rival? This coming from Mehmet Oz is, um, is something. First, it's an attack on my patriotism from a guy who served in the Turkish military and is a dual citizen of Turkey, which is an adversary of ours in bed with Iran, and someone who um, is also a hypocrite who has made enormous amount of money, a $50 million deal with Asana, has been a spokesperson, which is one of the Chinese Communist Party um, government-owned companies. He's um, made a career of, um, of having his words on Chinese television approved by the Chinese propaganda machine. So there's both hypocrisy there and, um, and a lack of integrity. Um, in terms of my China record, I've negotiated at the highest levels of government against China, and then I'm someone who's done business around the world over the last six years as CEO, um, where we invested in 20 countries around the world, including China. And I think we had something like 2% of our business coming from China. And it's a little bit like President Trump. Here's a guy who had business around the world with uh, Russia, China, elsewhere. And he said, that's going to make me a better negotiator. It's going to make me a better president. And I make the same argument to the people of Pennsylvania. That's going to make me a great strong senator. Now, in terms of what we should do, we should decouple in key industries where we're highly dependent on China, most, most notably pharmaceuticals and semiconductors. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that we're as dependent as we are. 90% of the world's semiconductors are manufactured 90 miles from uh, mainland China. We need to hold China accountable for COVID. Um, we still don't know, haven't gotten to the bottom of that. That's uh, something that killed a million Americans. That's something that was trillions of dollars of value. We, we ought to have reparations or the opportunity for families that had losses to sue China. We ought to also hold China accountable for fentanyl, which is manufactured coming across our southern border and killing Pennsylvanians. We ought to continue President Trump's great steps on fair trade, the tariffs, making sure that whatever trade and investment we have with China is fair and on, on fair standing from a subsidies perspective in terms of open markets. And then finally, we need to have a review process that makes sure whatever investment is happening from companies or investors in China is going through a review process to make sure it's not helping the Chinese military. You know, we have Silicon Valley companies, for example, that are investing in artificial intelligence that's helping the Chinese military. We can't have that. When you were in the Bush administration, you were in the Commerce Department, you dealt with G8 nations when Russia was part of the, the, the club, now that's the G7. You were there as Undersecretary of the Treasury when things went bad and we had a big economic downturn in 2008. Do you see with inflation as it is and with the price of gas and, and wheat and all these things surging with this Russian invasion, do you think we're headed into an economic downturn again, maybe a recession? 
Well, I think this uh, this inflation challenge is a byproduct of bad policies, and I think it does really pose a risk to us. And as you know, inflation, where prices rise faster than wages, is a burden on the entire economy. It's a burden on all of us, but it's really a burden on working families. And there's three things that are at the core of this problem. The first we just talked about, which is energy policy. Second, um, the spending, the surge in fiscal spending that came under the Biden administration as being proposed going forward is a direct driver of our, uh, of our inflation challenge. And, um, and the Biden administration is making the argument, this is going to help. This isn't going to help. This is the cause of, of the inflation problem we have. And so we have to be more fiscally responsible. And the third thing we need to do is have smarter a monetary policy. And uh, you know, Jay Powell, I think, has been the reason that we've had easy policy for too long. Uh, there was a time 18 months ago where he could have slowly tightened, given that the economy was bouncing back, and he didn't. And that's making it much harder now for us to have the kind of monetary policy we need. So we can fix these things. We just need smart, thoughtful, courageous economic policy to do it. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, Congress plans to continue showing its support for Ukraine with new votes aimed at the Russian economy. We'll look at that bipartisan effort and what other options the Biden administration may have to respond to the ongoing Russian invasion. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.